Yeah, so we finished on the inheritance, and you said that inheritance is bad because of it's based on data, mostly. Yes, and uh, yes. Behavioral inheritance would have much flatter trees, and it's not worth the trouble. Okay. What do you think about object relational mapping, if you know what it is? Oh, yes. <laughs> so what do you think about that? Um, Okay, so in the, in the very first days that objects were being used, uh, and when you were doing things with Smalltalk in particular, uh, you would take six weeks and write a Smalltalk program. Mm -hmm. And then you would take six months to figure out how to get the data into and out of a relational database. And there were all kinds of frameworks that were being made to try and make this easier to, to make this transition. Uh, in, in point of fact, relational thinking and object thinking are, you know, diametrically opposed. I mean, they just, it's, it's, it's a bad thing, period. Mm -hmm. um, but then the database people started getting smart. There used to be, uh, well, there still is one. Uh, one company called Gemstone still has an object database, and it's a, a really good object database. There was another one that was uh, the best object database ever was a product called Itasca, and it never went anywhere. Uh, it was ended up by being bought by a company in France, and now they use it in embedded systems. They sell bill of materials kinds of systems to large airplane manufacturers and people who have uh, that kind of, of problem to solve. And interestingly enough, uh, a relational data, if you're doing a bill of materials for a 747 or a big jet, mm -hmm. uh, printing a bill of materials from a relational database can take forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With an object database, you know it's 30 seconds mm -hmm. to do this. Uh, so, so that's the kind of application that it's found and, and people use it there. Uh, but the other database people, like the Oracle and so on, started doing all kinds of things to make their databases less relational and more everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, so they added remote procedure calls and they added these other kinds of things and so they could come closer to simulating in the database technology. Mm -hmm object-ish kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So my understanding today is that it's not that hard to do anymore. To store and, uh, in yeah, format. Yeah, mm -hmm. to, to, to map back and forth from relational to object yeah, okay. is, is easier. Um, I haven't done it for a while mm -hmm. since it was extremely hard. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's true that it's easier now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. But the whole relational model itself has been called into question. Uh, so you have non-SQL databases, you have uh, MapReduce, you have all of these other kinds of database structures out there which are far more efficient and are far friendlier mm -hmm. to objects mm -hmm. uh, than a relational model is. So with any luck, relational technology will finally die you think so? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, huh. You know, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, you, uh, you don't see it in the web. Mm -hmm. And so as more and more things move to web and mobile and cloud and mm -hmm. things of this sort, the relational uses of relational technology mm -hmm. get smaller and smaller. They're going to be the old traditional back-end insurance companies or banks or whatever that mm -hmm. have these kinds of specialized needs. Mm -hmm. um, so we will have object databases, you think? No, uh, no. I think you'll have uh, you know, some of these other kinds of uh, alternatives. There is I have seen a, a movement uh, to create so-called intelligent databases, mm -hmm. which combine object database ideas with some of the uh, uh, text database mm -hmm. kinds of things mm -hmm. and uh, learning capabilities and, and things of this sort so that the database becomes more of an mm -hmm. intelligent knowledge store mm -hmm. 
instead of a stupid data store. Mm -hmm. um, and th that might have mm -hmm. some, some, you know, relational isn't going to go away in my lifetime. I, I would like to see it die, but <laughs> it's, not that it's not going to be that fast. But The question which is difficult for me to answer, and I'm trying to like many times, how would you say, how would you define what is an object? Because the Wikipedia says it's a set of attributes plus a set of procedures that right. to them. And people say it's, it's a small computer, which you can give instructions and can give you the result. Right. Some people say it's, uh, it's a piece of memory right. where some data is stored and there's some type of this data. So what would you call the object? What is it? In your book, it's defined as a quantum <laughs> which the universe is built for. Yes. Um. So I would, I would say that the closest of the standard kinds of definitions, an object is an intelligent virtual computer. Uh -huh. And the intelligent part means that it behaves just like a human being would. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you anthropomorphize mm -hmm. an object when you're thinking about it and designing it, uh, you, if you think as if it was a human being, and say, well, you know, I have to ask you what your name is. I have to ask you if you would do this service for me or whatever. Uh, and you are perfectly capable of doing the, these services. I mean, you have a resume. Mm -hmm. You say, I can do this and I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think of it, uh, the intelligent part is being human intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, an object is just like another human being. Mm -hmm. The virtual computer part means that it has at its disposal anything it needs to do what it says it can do, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of knowledge and in terms of computing resources, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, uh, so it, by definition, has its own thread mm -hmm. uh, in a multitasking machine or whatever. I mean, and it has. It has access to all of the resources of the computer that it needs mm -hmm. to do it, 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 its work. But still a computer, so it works for us. It's kind of, you know, we are primary, he or she or it is secondary. Um, or no? No. So, for instance, if you're designing a user interface, yeah. uh, people usually think of a user interface as the human being mm -hmm. inter interrogating the computer or asking things of the computer. But if I was designing an application, so suppose I'm designing a form, uh, which is an inanimate thing, you know, it's a piece of paper, whatever, and I'm creating a, an object, which is a form. Well, that object then is going to see you as a data source. Yeah. It's going to ask you questions and say, well, I have this hole in my, you know, in myself as a form. Are you a guy or are you a girl? Yeah, yeah. And so I can fill in the form. Mm -hmm. So no, it's, you know, there is no uh, master-slave relationship here. Yeah. Your peers. Yeah. With all your at the object, which is a book, for example. Yes. I don't like to think about it as a computer. It's more like a thing for me, a no. book, which is... But some people uh, say it's a computer, so you send an instruction, give me your title, and the book right. says this is your title. It computes the title for me and returns mm -hmm. back. So is the Kindle a book or a computer? The, the Kindle. Yeah. Well, the Kindle, yeah, Kindle is a smart book, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the, the fact that it's a computer inside doesn't matter to you a bit. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, it's a book just like the other book. And actually, it's, it's a better book because mm -hmm. it can do things that a paper and ink mm -hmm. book can't. Um, I mean, things that are useful directly to you has nothing to do with what's inside of it or anything else. It's just all the way you interact with it. Mm -hmm. So it has behaviors that are greater than the number of behaviors assigned to a paper book. Uh, so yeah, you don't have to think, you know, you... The definition, the yeah. quantum definition sounds better for me than a computer. Okay, <laughs> yeah, well it's... Because uh, computer smells like it's something, something yes. secondary. You know, there's somebody okay. who asks and right. this guy computes. Yes. But the book. Okay not necessarily computes anything for right. me, it, it behaves for me. That's right. my understanding. So, um, whether there's a computer inside an object or not is irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, it, it's behind the encapsulation. You're not supposed to know how an object does what it does. 
You, so therefore, by definition, you don't need to know if it's using circuits or if it's using corpuscles. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it doesn't make any difference to you. It's, it's not important. So, yeah. so yeah, you could drop the virtual computer part of it off and totally and just say, you know, it is, a, um, it is an entity that can do things and might ask you to do things. And so you know, the whole universe is built out of objects. Um, there's actually a thread in philosophy. Uh, it has nothing to do with computing or anything else. Dealing with where objects came from is a philosophical and psychological concept. You know, why is it that we say that this uh, arrangement of atoms is something? Uh, and has stability or has other you know characteristics or behaviors or whatever uh, there's there's a whole whole school of philosophy just concerned with that question and that's very close to the quanta kind of notion is that uh, for whatever reason our human brains are configured to identify things and these things are, are objects mm -hmm. What do you think about immutability? You probably know what it is, immutability. So do objects have to be immutable or they're okay to have these setters which are, you know, you yes. make an object and then after the object is built, right. you still inject something into it. Yep. Or the object has to be built once and that's it and stay like that. Um, I've been having this discussion with a friend of mine, uh, well, a former student who has become a very good friend. Um, and my question to him was, show me anything in the world that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Show me anything that doesn't change. So why should I be modeling things that fit this kind of an ideal? And he was trying to make the argument that in some uh, areas of parallel processing and multi-core processing and things of this sort, that you can run into issues of identity. And again, these, these all sound so technical. He, he gets into deep programmer ease <laughs> to try to justify why immutability is a good thing or an essential thing in some cases. Mm -hmm. And I can't go there. I don't have that level of expertise mm -hmm. in programming. Uh, but in all of our discussions, I still haven't found a reason um, you know, that, that you would mandate things be immutable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's but, a, but immutable objects are more like, let's imagine this is a book and you create an object book, which is, which, which is an object in programming, but it's a real book on the table. So mm -hmm. they are like the same thing. So I'm talking to this mm -hmm. virtual book and there's a real book. And then while it's still, I'm still working with it, if it's mutable, I'm able to say, now you're representing another book. So that's what mutability, uh, you know, and that's no. what I think is okay. not really good. So I have a book sitting there on the table. Yeah. And uh, it went through a long process of being written, being edited, being proofread, mm -hmm. and it gets published. Yeah. And it's sitting there on the table. And I pick it up one day and I say, oh, damn, there's a misspelling on page seven. Mm -hmm. uh, it's immutable. I can't do anything about it. Yeah. But my software book, I can change it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I can correct it. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, you change the content. You don't change the entire book. Yes, so immutability gets into, you know, questions of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and a confusion that we have, uh, well, so, so you as a person, mm -hmm. are you the same person? No, I'm changing. All the time. <laughs> Yes. Do you have a different name, a different social security number? No, it's still the same. <laughs> it stays the same, yeah. 
And do you have this sense that there is at least some little core, your soul, yeah, that has been you. this has been immutable all through all of this, the, yeah, these yeah. changes? And that, that's your real identity kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have these confused philosophical concepts mm -hmm. or the way that we use language. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we try to apply these language to computer programs and programming, we, we have a tendency sometimes to forget that it's just a metaphor for, for something that we're trying to accomplish over here. And, um, it also ties into this notion of state, uh, but that also gets back to, you know, a data conception of, of objects. That if you define your state of your object as the unique configuration of values in all your variables, you change one of those, you've changed your state. Yeah. Then you can cause problems. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but so the, the, then the question is, 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 uh, is that just another kind of an offshoot of a data view of an object mm -hmm. and a data de definition of what state is yeah. that is exactly the same as the definition of what class you belong to? If you have one more variable mm -hmm. than something else, then by definition, you're a different class of object. Yeah. I mean, you know, somehow or other, those two things are tied together. Um, mm -hmm. And if you think about the problem, you could think about, well, you know, should this thing be stateful in this way? Mm -hmm. uh, or is there a way of isolating the variability part of it, of an object, from the invariability part of the object? So if you, if you have an idea as an object, that should be that value should be immutable. You get it when you're born, and it stays with you forever. But things like your description, your height, weight, etc., uh, or you know things that change, like uh, you know people change gender. You know it's not immutable. Can you isolate that uh, so that you have every object has a description, and that's immutable? But the nature of that description or what kind of things are included in it are not. And it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, again, it reflects reality. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also deal with it with this sense of, uh, you know, the meta-object protocol, the fact of, of reflection. So if I have... Uh, you know, if somehow or other it matters to me that my uh, value, I'm a stock in a portfolio, and my value, it matters, my value at, uh, at 10 o'clock and 10.01 and 10.02 and 10.03, mm -hmm. um, I have to know which one I'm dealing with, mm -hmm. uh, which is an argument for immutability. It should just be one thing, and if you have a new value, you're a new object. Mm -hmm. um, why not just give myself a memory? And say, oh well, you want to know my value now? Do you want to know my value as of, mm -hmm. you know, a particular date? Um, and then you you can have both. You can have simplicity of change. It's still one object, mm -hmm. but it now remembers things about itself, uh, which it can tell you using reflection. Mm -hmm. so. What do you think about reflection in general? That was one of my questions. In Java, it's like so popular, and you can do whatever you want with an object, with a class, with a variable. Yeah. You basically, open it like it's, that. Like it's an extremely powerful tool, and it can be really badly abused. Uh -huh. But I think it's essential. I mean, yeah. So the, the, yes, the whole idea of being an intelligent object mm -hmm. um, means that you you should be able to uh, to know things about yourself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and again, if, you, if we think of people, we do this all the time. I sit here and say, oh, um, um, I can lift that TV. Well, no, I'm kind of tired today. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, I, there, there's a lot of times that you use that kind of reflection. Mm -hmm. 
but when it becomes a technical term in a programming language, it then becomes mm -hmm. uh, a dangerous thing potentially. Potentially, but as a design thing, it's essential. So after the object is coming to me, for example, it's a book, and I'm receiving this book from another, from somebody else, and I'm looking at it. So I'm supposed to be able to like check what what's the what are the attributes there, or what methods do you have, or what is your type? What I mean, what from what class are you coming from? Sure. So I will just can just you know open it wide and see what's inside. Do you think it's it, we need that? Um, no, it's not. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, that, that's not. That's not my understanding of reflection. Uh -huh. My understanding of reflection is that the book uh -huh. can know w will know things about itself. So it knows how many pages it has. It knows when it was written. It knows, and it yeah, and you can ask the object things uh -huh. about itself. And it has access to that information. That's things it needs to know. So if you send a message to identify a book, it uses reflection on itself on itself yeah, to yeah. identify itself. Yeah. But I'm talking in Java, it's possible to uh, look at the book from the outside yes, and no. just look what's going on inside and even no. change that on the fly and say, hey, how about we just now add new method to you and then remove this proper, these no. attributes from you. No. That's uh, bad, right? Yes. Uh, so I frequently use, and I don't remember if I put it in the book or not, but I used it in classes all the time. It says, I, I have the capability, the technology exists, mm -hmm. that I could put wires in your head mm -hmm. and press a button over here and make you raise your hand or do other kinds of silly things. Yeah. Would you like that? Do you want me to do that to you? No. <laughs> then why do you do it to your software objects? Yeah. You know, it, it's a violation of the integrity of, of the whole philosophy of an object. Yeah, it's like breaks the yeah the philosophical and encapsulation is broken, right? Yes, we just absolutely. Don't encapsulate anymore. We just correct. It's just a box, open box of things inside, yeah. right? Yes. All right. Now the more philosophical questions uh, for the future. Okay. We discussed that yesterday, but I want to emphasize it again. Uh, people come. I see it very often. People saying that all these ideas about object programming, the right object approach is good, but in my practical work, when I go back to the office, people around me, they don't use that. And all the frameworks we use, they're designed differently. And if I start working like that, if I start designing objects like, yeah, like you're suggesting, like I'm suggesting them to do, uh, they may fire me eventually because I'll, I'll design software in a completely different way from, over, from everybody else. And my colleagues will complain and my, my software will not, be, will not fit into their into the entire product. So what do we do? They say, like, your, your ideas are nice, but they're not applicable to the real world. Right. So what's, the problem is they, they're telling me, like, I will not be able to find a job if I follow these good principles of object-oriented programming. Because the whole world, also that's another point, they're saying that the whole world turned away from these pure object-oriented ideas like 20 years ago, after small talk kind of died, like you said. Mm -hmm. So we all decided... The, the entire Java world decided to go different direction and use this data approach and objects are just pieces of data mm -hmm. with, with procedures on top of them. And now you're trying, I'm, I'm telling them it's time to mm -hmm. go back, but they're saying no, the whole world has already moved away from that and mm -hmm. you won't be able to find a job if you do that. Okay. What do you think? So there, there's a whole mixture of things in there. Is Now, number one, this is, sounds mean, but are you a coward? <laughs> you know, do you have any individual, do you know that this is the right thing to do and then you're chickening out on doing it because, or do you actually really disagree, you know, that this is the right way of doing things? I mean, if, if, you, if you don't do something that you know is right, just because you're afraid of what your friends are going to say, um, it doesn't matter whether you're writing code or, you know, telling racist jokes, mm -hmm. it's wrong. And you have to have the courage, you know, to do what's right. Um, practically speaking, yes, you will be putting yourself at risk of being fired. Um, but it's not like jobs are hard to get out there for most people. You know, if you have any skill at all, uh, you're going to be able to get a job. And there are people that will appreciate what you're doing uh, and so so it's not as big a risk as you think that it is 
Uh, slightly bigger risk is the fact that managers, your, your, particularly your IT managers, uh, are managers because they were really good programmers 20 years ago. <laughs> In most cases, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so they say, well, hell, if I couldn't do it in COBOL, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, what good is it? And so you, you run into the, this dinosaur phenomenon uh, that happens. Um, and then the kind of the, the third sort of thing is that if you look at the, you know, our profession isn't that old. It's only about 60 years old. But even in that 60 years, you keep seeing these cycles, uh, so-called revolutions as they come through. Uh, so the first one was structured analysis, design structured practices, uh, which actually started off as programming structured code. Um, but it, then it generalizes and uh, it try, it's trying to solve the mismatch between the way that we're officially supposed to do things and the way that we know we should be doing things and the way that would produce better results. Uh, so structured and then uh, actually databases for a while was one of these kinds of things that forces to try and rethink our approach to doing things. Um, and, and to that extent, data was really good or databases were really good because it forces to look at the things that had some uh, perseverance over time. Data lasts, procedures don't. Mm -hmm. Procedures constantly are changing. So it, it changed a, a focus and we made that change and then objects and then agile. Uh, at each one of these times, there's a little period at the beginning where you, you might have some influence. So in some ways I wish that I had written my book in 1990 because maybe it would have, you know, had some, some influence on uh, preventing some of the things that I don't really think it would, but it might have had this kind of thing. Well, right now we're going back into another, we're, we're starting another one of these cycles. So Agile has now kind of burned out. Objects burned out a decade ago. Um, a thing called microservice architecture. Mm -hmm. is becoming the new thing to do. I mean, it's getting a lot of attention. People are talking about it at conferences and so on. If you read what it is, it's objects. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's behavioral objects. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I don't use the, the terminology and I don't talk about small talk or whatever, but I talk about how to make my Java code my, my designs be this microservice behavioral object kind of design and then go ahead and implement it in, in Java. You, you can do object programming in Java, just most people don't. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you pick your moment. So yes, uh, if, uh, if I go to my office today, people are gonna laugh at me. Yes. But then Monday, my manager's gonna walk in and says, hey, what do you know about MSA? And you say, oh, hey, I know a hell of a lot about MSA. Because <laughs> I know objects. Yeah, because, and, and you don't even have to say because I know objects. You know, you can just say I know a hell of a lot about it. And then you just give them exactly what you want to, mm -hmm. to tell them. But is it possible, what do you think, is it possible to, to, to get back to the original understanding of objects and do it right now? I mean, in the in, in current world, in this Java world, um, Java dominates with the, the data? I think it would be very hard. Really? Uh, you know, once things get some momentum, the only way to uh, to deal with them seems to be to subvert them. You know, another attempt at revolution. Mm -hmm. But it's a revolution. It's not evolution. We can't just slow go go get back. Uh, no, you 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 could probably do that too. Um, can we transfer slow programmers and our mindsets back to the proper understanding of objects from this procedural world which we have yeah. now, this command and control plus data? Yes. So, yeah. You think we can? I think we can. Um, it would obviously would be a much slower process. Mm 
because you know convincing people to change their minds is easier than shaping their minds in the first place, mm -hmm. which is why the revolution kind of idea is more likely. Uh, but you can do that. Obviously, I believe you can do that, or I wouldn't have been teaching the last 20 years, you know, teaching people to do this. And sometimes, you know, you got a class of 30 people, and three of them really get it. So you have to you have to be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to be prepared with this kind of low numbers or low volume kind of thing. But you do make a difference. And you see these people go on and, and be successful. So my friend, uh, it used to really annoy me that, that my best students that really took the ideas that I gave them, and especially some of the object ideas and stuff, that they would go out there and make twice my salary in the real world, you know, with my ideas. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but they—they most of them have become really good friends, and they—and they're successful, and they make changes, and you can see companies that they have worked with that are doing things better. Mm -hmm. And if you can be happy or satisfied with that kind of incremental change and stuff, yes, you—you you can constantly make the world a better place, mm -hmm. uh, and you—you you will eventually succeed. Um, but the, the, the main thrust of the argument about what will and won't work moves from the way from the technical, the programming, into the world of economics. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we're still in a world where the people that are paying for software don't care. You know, they, they'll spend a billion dollars and throw it away tomorrow, and it doesn't matter to them. Um, you know, as long as they their systems don't crash or whatever, I mean, they, they just really don't care. Uh, but I can't see that changing. So uh, as long as it doesn't change, then you're fighting an uphill battle because where's the motivation to do things right if you're a programmer? Uh, and, and that's really what a lot of the resistance that you, you were talking about is that, oh, well, I can't go and apply this at work tomorrow. And well, you certainly can. And yes, it carries some risk, uh, but I'm not willing to because, you know, what's the motivation? What's the incentive? It's not going to get me a raise. It's not going to get me recognition. It's not going to make any difference in the company. The company's still going to throw the money away or cancel the project or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and as long as that's true, it's going to be really, really hard. I do not believe that companies can continue to spend this kind of money uh, forever. I mean, uh, there, there, there's got to be some kind of, of accounting sooner or later. And the, the companies that are buying this stuff are saying, okay, I want what you're giving me for 10% of what you're currently charging me. Mm -hmm. Can you do it? Well. If you're a good object programmer, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. If you're a really good, skilled, traditional Java programmer, no, you can't. <laughs> so, you know, but don't ask me to tell you what day that is going to come. Yeah, sure. But I think it is coming. I think that uh, it's just absurd the amount of money that we spend and throw away on IT. And that's because we're not doing objects properly. Mm -hmm. In part. In part, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we've learned over the last 50 years, particularly from the practice, that don't get used. Um, you know, some of the ideas of structured design, the coupling and cohesion, and the, the kind of effort people went in to figure out what what is it that makes one object coupled to another. What are the kinds of ways of doing it? They range from communicational coupling, which you know I have to know who you are if I'm going to talk to you or send you a message, mm -hmm. which is the, the least form of, of coupling necessary, all the way up to pathological, where I have to know how your kidneys work in order to mm -hmm. effectively use you. Mm -hmm. um, but people don't remember that stuff. Um, People, uh, cohesion, and, and this is particularly in data objects, 
uh, if you are building a data object, uh, cohesion is defined by the, the methods or the functions use the data that is in your, in your object. And that's the only reason that the, the functions are grouped together is because they use the same data. Well, that's not good cohesion. That's really awful cohesion. Uh, the cohesion should be based upon your behavior. What are the things that you do? And what you need to know to do it, which is what you store in your data things, is, is uh, irrelevant. You know, it's just, you just have to know that I, I have that knowledge. And you don't even have to have it in a data variable. You can ask for it as an argument. You can go off to a global somewhere like the system clock and ask what time it is if you need to know the time in order to do something. I mean, there's lots of ways you can get that knowledge. It just means you have to have access to it. It doesn't mean you have to store it. Um, yeah. And so if, if you go back to structured development and you look at all the, the conversations about what makes things cohesive, you could learn a lot about making good objects. And then from good objects, you can learn a lot about how to make good programs and, and everything else. So, Do you think we need new languages to write better code, or we can still stay in C++ and Java and write proper objects? Um, or we need to throw them away and forget them and to move forward? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we probably need new languages, but I suspect that they're going to be more along the lines of the domain-specific languages kinds of things, mm -hmm. uh, and that are designed as a way of expressing or articulating your understanding of the world. So expressiveness is going to be important. Mm -hmm. Things like efficiency, which C gives you, uh, zero expressive, maximum performance, those kinds of languages are not going to be valuable. Mm -hmm. General purpose languages uh, goes back to the question you asked earlier about you know, hybrid languages. Mm -hmm. um, why make general purpose anything? Uh, the world is moving away from that concept. Uh, which would you rather have? Uh, an application like Photoshop, big, huge, massive, integrated app, or would you like to have uh, 10 or 11 apps that did specific things? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Which, which would you rather have? The second one, the second option. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way the world is going in general. And the same thing should be true of languages. Um, so you're thinking we're going to have specific languages and they will be... Domain-specific languages, yeah, for, for doing certain proper things. Or yeah. You see that a little bit now. Uh, people who write games don't really write in Java. I mean, the, the game's engine may have been written in Java once upon a time and then probably optimized into C or C++ for efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're writing the actual games get written in more of a... Uh, a pro English or natural language prose kind of thing because it's uh, it, what you're trying to articulate is the same as you're writing a novel. You know, uh, Java is not a good language for writing a novel. <laughs> mm, yeah, it makes sense. And so gamers don't use Java to, to create a game. So in this case, you're moving programmers away from computers. Kind of, right? That's yes. what's happening. They were really close to computers when there was time of C and COBOL yes. and Fortran. They really yes. knew how computers worked. Right. And now they will know how, how to right. write an English poem. Right? Yes. So some programmers complain yes. about that, saying, no, we are engineers, we're mathematicians, yes. we want to know how computers work, right. bytes, bits, all this. Yes. And, and this is very definitely a case of going back to the past. Uh -huh. So 1968, the, the software crisis that gave rise to all of these engineers and this whole profession and a whole academic discipline and everything else, it was because there were not enough programmers. The demand was huge and the number of programmers were, were very small, in part because the nature of a programmer. So if you were a programmer in 1968, 
you were a domain expert first and a programmer second. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, when I got my first job in computing, it was at a bank. And I had to take continuing education courses in banking for the whole time I was there. Every year I had to take four credits, mm -hmm. which meant four weeks of you know, training in banking. Mm -hmm. They never sent me to school to learn COBOL mm -hmm. <laughs> or anything of this sort. I was a domain expert who knew how to code. And COBOL was more than sufficient as a language to articulate what I knew about banking. Okay, uh, I might have been a physicist, and Fortran was the language that I used to express my knowledge of physics. Mm -hmm. Okay, today programmers don't know anything about any domain except the computer. Mm -hmm. And uh, this whole concept of new languages is that you, as a programmer, you should be learning or mastering one or more domains or how to think about you know the problem space and then find the language which will be specific to that domain so fortran works really well for physicists cobol works really well for banks you know why do i need java mm -hmm. in either of those cases and so you're going to see more instances of of languages reflecting the knowledge and the expressiveness that you need in a domain. Um, games are the best example of that right now that I know of in computing. Um, but some of the things that people are doing in domain DSLs, uh, it, it goes in the same direction. And um, Smalltalk was not an object-oriented computer language. It was a language that allowed kids to interact with and have carry on a dialogue with their computer without knowing that it was a computer inside. <laughs> you know, it was just this, like a, a futuristic robot, somebody that we could talk to mm -hmm. and it could tell us interesting things and, and so on. Mm -hmm. But the whole language was designed to be a language of conversation not a language of programming. Not a language of moving bytes and bits. Yep. Right? Right. Yeah. You weren't moving bytes and bits, you were writing a line with a pen. Mm -hmm. And what happened underneath? That was magic, you know? I mean, that... Mm -hmm. So it's okay for programmers to stay away from bytes and bits sure. in the future, yeah? Sure. It doesn't degrade yes. their, like, you know... Now there are... Their professional... Right. <laughs> um, you know, there, there clearly are problem sets. So if you're Google and you have to come back in a tenth of a second with 70 million search results, yeah. you'd better be damn technical <laughs> yeah. in your code and your language and you should probably be writing in C or Assembler. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, so yes. But there are not so many Googles in the world. That's right, the point, the, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. There's that, that many of them. Mm -hmm. For 90 probably 95% of the programming that is done in the world, you don't need bits and bytes. Mm -hmm. That's a good, it's a good statement. Yes. <laughs> okay, all right. What would you recommend to read and to follow and to watch to people who want to think differently, not this hundreds of Java books on the market oh, yes. everywhere, but to actually change their minds? Okay. Who are these people who are talking the same? Like, your book is great, but who else? I asked the question yesterday to you, though. I'm right. repeating it again. Um, so there, there are a variety of different things that I would read. Uh, I would read some technical books. So some other people that have written about objects. Mm -hmm. I would read Rebecca Wurstbrock's first book on designing OO. Uh, not her second book, but her first book. Um, I would actually go and read um, Grady Booch's mm -hmm. first book on objects. Object it was the actual, the very first book published on object-oriented design. Okay. Um, and the, the first few chapters in particular, he talks very much about behavioral kinds of objects and you know, ways of doing things. Uh, he was a methodologist, and so he got very heavy into all of these different kinds of models and being able to articulate things. And so that, that part is less valuable. 
but the, the, when he was first talking about objects and so on, um, and was saying, you know, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking, it leads to fundamentally different kinds of solutions and different kinds of problems. He's, he's right on in that kind of thing. So go back to the very first 1990 version of, of object design and read that part of Grady Booch. I would read some of the papers that Kent Beck wrote on objects and uh, particularly on class responsibility collaborator cards. Mm -hmm. Again, they articulating you know very clearly what they was being intended. Uh, I would read Alan Kay's papers. Mm -hmm. Alan Kay never really wrote anything on objects, but I would read some of the things that he said and some of the presentations that he's made. Uh, he has one in particular that was uh, late 90s, I guess, um, Why the Object Revolution Hasn't Happened Yet, mm -hmm. where he talks again about this was what the idea, this is what the conception was, uh, this is where it went wrong. Uh, so he's written a lot of papers, but not books mm -hmm. uh, of that sort. So that, that, those are the kind of technical things. I would go back and I would read um, a paper by Peter Nauer, mm -hmm. which talks about uh, programming is not a production process, but it's a, uh, a process of collaborative theory building, mm -hmm. uh, because that is fundamental to the whole agile thing as well as the object thing, that what we're really worried about is how we, how we understand the world and then how the computer is going to help us deal with some aspect or some problem in that world and how we build these theories. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I have th those kinds of things uh, on the technical side. Mm -hmm. uh, go read David Parnas, mm -hmm. uh, a book that he wrote, or a paper that he wrote uh, in the 80s. Uh, the software's, uh, uh, Software development is a rational design process, colon, how and why to fake it, mm -hmm. where he basically says that, you know, this, this myth that we tell ourselves about how we develop software mm -hmm. and the life cycle and things of this sort, how it's total crap. <laughs> I mean, we, we knew this back then. And so, so uh, you're, you're reading these, these kinds of things and that makes a difference. But then I would recommend uh, that you read fiction, fiction, fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, or other kinds of, read some business books. Read some business books about agile and objects and business objects and complexity uh, because they know a whole lot more about themselves than you do mm -hmm. when you're trying to build systems for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I would read, there's a whole host of design books uh, in another month, you can read my design thinking book, mm -hmm. which again, it goes to how do you solve and think about problems that are complex and wicked, where you, you don't have requirements, you can't have requirements, uh, you can't possibly know everything uh, up front, but you have to figure out how to build it anyway and how to solve it anyway, mm -hmm. or what you do with really complex problems like building a city. Uh, read Christopher Alexander's A City Is Not a Tree. Mm -hmm. Again, where he talks about complex systems and, and things of this sort. Uh, in fiction, I would recommend there are certain kinds of things like uh, Neil Stevenson has a book called Diamond Age. And he takes the concept that Alan Kay and, uh, uh, now I'm forgetting his name, they have the whole Dynabook concept. Uh, that has been floating around in computing for a long time and led to the laptop and notebook computers mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, it's all about, Diamond Age is a, about such a book mm -hmm. and how people interact with it and so on. Um, and it just brings new ideas uh, to mind. Alan Kay said that if you don't read for pleasure, you can't read for purpose. So if you haven't been reading some fiction or so, something that's just plain flat out fun uh -huh. uh, to read, then you're going to have a hard time digesting those Java manuals correctly. Interesting. Um, <laughs> that programmers need more imagination. 
they need to understand the role of metaphor. Uh, when you do something as simple in a program as, as uh, give a variable a name or give a function a name, you know, that's metaphor. Uh, Kent Beck's best small talk practice patterns uh, is an excellent little book. And it talks a lot, a lot of things, you know, about naming things and so on. So it's not really about small talk. It's about really excellent programmer practices and how you use metaphor and how you use uh, uh, kind of literate programming, writing for another human being as opposed for the machine, mm -hmm. uh, and have that reflected in your code. It makes it much, much, much better code. Mm -hmm. And it also helps you think about what you're doing better if you get the names right. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I had a, a friend once. It wasn't a friend. He was a colleague. Uh, he, was, he was literally insane. Uh, he would check himself into a hospital for six months, and then he would check himself out of the hospital and get a job as a programmer. Um, he had internalized the RPG language. Uh, it's a report generation language for old IBM mini computers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the project that we were working on was to write, to convert some RPG programs into COBOL programs because they were moving hardware. Mm -hmm. So you would look at his COBOL program and his data division would have 40,000 switches. I mean, that's literally, you'll switch one, switch two, switch 40,000, mm -hmm. which then in his procedural code, he would use to replicate the cycle of the RPG language for processing, you know, whatever it was that he was trying to do. Do you think anybody else in the world could read that damn stuff? <laughs> I mean, it worked, you know, I mean, it worked, but it was, it was, you might as well throw it away because no it's one was ever going to yeah. do anything with it later. Um, but programmers still have this tendency to either use silly names or, you know, meaningless acronyms or whatever to do data and function and naming and things of the, really a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so reading some of the things will make you not only a better object programmer, but a better programmer in general. Mm -hmm. um, uh, other kinds of fiction. Uh, well, there, 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 there's a lot of it, a lot of science fiction out there. Uh, I would read a lot of things on uh, science. I'd read some anthropology, uh, particularly get a feel for how ethnography is done mm -hmm. by an anthropologist. If you want to understand your users and you want to be able to see past what they tell you to what they really mean, mm -hmm. anthropologists can teach you a lot about that. That's interesting. So uh, Steve Jobs has said that he was successful at Apple because his whole life he lived at the intersection of technology and humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, business world talks about how it's no longer sufficient to be just um, an expert at X, Y, or Z, that you need to have this broader base of knowledge uh, business also talks about, uh, it, it started off as the T-shaped individual, that you've got this breadth of knowledge and then you have some depth in a particular area. Mm -hmm. Most programmers are just vertical lines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but most programmers are just eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you have to be a T, uh, but then uh, that was advanced to you need to be a pie-shaped individual. You should have your breadth in at least two areas of depth. And now it's the broken comb that you've got this, you know, varying, varying depth. I mean, so if you look at a comb, it'll be thick in the center and then it gets narrower uh, towards the ends. And then the teeth come down and some of them are broken off. Some of them go down quite a ways. Mm -hmm. But you need to have, you know, this variable breadth of knowledge is all these T's. Mm -hmm. And the, the term that is tossed around again in the business world mm -hmm. is that you have to be a modern polymath. Mm -hmm. So a polymath is somebody who knows everything that there is to know. 
and there hasn't been one since Leibniz is sometimes considered to be the last polymath that everything that was known when Leibniz was alive he knew or knew about and could you know so the idea is that now you need to be this modern polymath you need to have you need to know a hell heck of a lot more than Java and compiler tricks and you know things of this sort the uh, software craftsmanship movement which sprang out of agile you know in its claims to be heading in that kind of direction but again their their goals is that they want to know more about how to code they also want to know more about the history of coding so that if someone had a good solution 10 years ago that they would know about it mm -hmm. but they still are you know pretty much focused within knowing more and more and more about coding and not anything about domains outside of mm -hmm. coding which is uh, short-sighted mm -hmm. if you don't have this but that you know that, that's kind of a uh, scary challenge mm -hmm. for most people to think that they have to do that um, yeah. but that's the only way that you really really get good at you know especially at design uh, is to have this this breadth of knowledge uh, really to work from recommendations to our yeah. listeners <laughs> One last question. What are you working right now on? I mean, what the book or content? What's the next step after? Okay, so I am, um, I am just finishing a book with a co-author, Rebecca, um, in Sweden. Um, Rebecca Rickner in, in Sweden. And it should be published in about a month or so. The uh, design thinking. The design thinking. Mm -hmm. And it tries to take things that the design community, particularly you know, our architects and graphic artists and, and things, these people that consider themselves to be real professional designers, they have been grappling with and finding ways to deal with unstructured complex problems for a long time and they're very good at it. Mm -hmm. The software world has not. Mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully this is going to bring some ideas to the software community about how they can do a better job at solving complex large-scale problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that should come out uh, in about six months is, um, I keep fluctuating between Ars Magna as a title and Living Systems Design as a title, so it'll probably be Living Systems Design. Okay. <laughs> um, the Ars Magna, that's great art in Latin, and it goes back to a guy named Ramon Lull that you've never heard of but he was the inventor of computational science. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, uh, he lived in Spain in Majorca, mm -hmm. was a Catholic, uh, was a mystic, and he built this computational device to help expose the mind and will of God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but he actually invented, so there, there were computers and ca or calculators and stuff before him, obviously, mm -hmm. but he was the first one to come up with a symbolic kind of computing. Uh, approach and then Leibniz uh, took that and developed it into a more scientific kind of of effort and then it went into Descartes and gave us modern computing but Ramon Lull was actually the original computer um, and his book was called Ars Magna so that's why I did this one but living system design is it's intended to be comprehensive. It's to go from point A to point B about all the things that you should or could be doing in software development in support of uh, making an existing system better, enhancing an existing system instead of trying to build an artificial replicant. Um, it's a whole lot easier to give somebody an artificial kidney or even an artificial heart than it is to build data the Android uh, uh, but that's anyhow uh, and then the last one is that I'm actually writing just a very practical book it's going to be relatively short on microsystem uh, microservice architecture because again I see that as an area where they are saying the right things about behavior and about how you uh, modularize things that is almost identical to what 
were being said about objects in the 80s. But here we still have a chance to do it right. But here we have a chance to influence them, mm -hmm. hopefully. Okay. So that's, uh, that, that book might actually come out fairly soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm working on that. And then I have totally restructured my web page. Uh, it won't be available until September. Uh, DaveWest.us and it's going to have a couple hundred presentations and papers and things like that that I've written over the years. It'll have links to the well, to the books yeah. and it'll have a blog, uh, oh. Feral Cogitation. So, so, so I'm uh, decided I'm just going to put it all out there and if everybody ignores it, you know, fine, I'm old. I'm <laughs> But maybe it'll have, no, no, have it some have, influence. It will have, definitely. Yeah. I'll be so, the reader for sure. <laughs> so. Okay, thank you very so, much. Okay. I think we're done. Okay, cool. Thanks.